Hello, friends, and thank you for joining Christ Church Online. We are in week three of our series entitled Love Letters to the Lord, and this week we are led by the Reverend Dr. John Guest. Pastor John will be preaching on Jesus' letter to the church in Pergamum. Here he is with this week's message. Thank you for listening. What a great setup for us to uh, take a look on page two in your service sheet as well at this letter to the church in Pergamum. What's amazing for me to be able to tell you this is I've been to the cave where John had the vision on Patmos where God revealed to him not just his presence but these churches with the messages that he sent to them. That's an amazing place to be. And I've also been to the seven places, the seven churches. They're at the western side of Turkey nowadays. I can put you up a map on the screen so that you can see. Asia Minor, that block of land there, is Turkey. And those churches, seven of them, are clustered along that western side of Turkey. And you can see Pergamum there, right at the top, the most northern. The three huge influential cities were Ephesus, you see it's on the coast, Sardis, and Pergamum. Those were three huge centers. Now let me tell you about Pergamum, because as Jesus is dictating to John, and John writes the letter, this is what he says, I know where you live. That's verse 13 of Revelation chapter 2, I know where you live. It's an interesting and encouraging thing for me to say to you all, Jesus knows exactly where you live. He knows the big scene, Pittsburgh or what, wherever you live, and he knows the intimate scene, your home, your street, your family, your stuff. He knows. And what John knew about Pergamum, as Jesus revealed it to him, was within that city was an immense religious structure that was evil and was described as the seat of Satan. The amount of religious activity in that town, there was a a temple to Athena, an Acropolis similar to the one that's over Athens in Greece, for all kinds of gods, an altar to Zeus, one uh, built to Caesar Augustus, who was already the Caesar in Rome, and this was the first of the Caesars that they made God and had worship offered to him. And one of the things that uh, is Stunning is that in the midst of all this paganism, because temple worship was debauched, it wasn't just that they they had these feasts, but they drank, 
crazy drink and got into sexual immorality all as part of worship. So it was a decadent, wicked scene. And Pergamum was this amazing, affluent scene as well. There was a hospital there that was very famous. I've been to visit that hospital. They had the greatest library in the pagan world. And Antony of Antony and Cleopatra fame gave that library to Cleopatra. And she had it lugged all the way to Alexandria, North Africa. So it was an extraordinary place. And coming up on the screen, you'll see, and it's still there, and we've been there and sat there and did some teaching there, the, uh, the amphitheater, look at that, on the side of the hill, with the lowlands spreading out from it. There was an estimation that was normally given that if you could seat, for instance, 5,000 in an auditorium or in an arena like that, then you multiplied that by something like six to tell you how many people were in the area. It was a very affluent, prosperous scene. And here is Jesus dictating to John this love letter, as we're calling them, concerning the church right there in Pergamum, and encouraging them because as he goes on to say I know where you live where Satan has his throne yet you remain true to my name you remain true to my name the significance of that in the Roman world of that day with Augustus proclaiming himself a god was this that you had to say Augustus was god You had to acclaim him. And a follower of Jesus could not do that. So the Christian would say, Jesus is Lord. Not Augustus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. And this unknown person, Antipas, other than his name turns up here, paid with his life along with many others along the way, for in no way bending the knee to worship the false gods of that day to be true to Jesus so he compliments them I know where you live where Satan has his throne yet you remain true to my name you did not renounce your faith in me even in the days of Antipas my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives But then he goes on to say this, Nevertheless, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, in other words, similarly, You also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. What it amounts to is this strange phenomenon 
of this heavily committed, committed to Jesus, even to willing to pay the price and lay down their lives, assemblage of people in this magnificent town, but amongst the church folks were those who were joining in the debauchery of the temple worship around them. And we do see something like this today in our own culture. It's amazing how many people who say they love Jesus or are spiritual is one of the favorite phrases by which people describe themselves. Not necessarily committed to Jesus, but even within our churches, within our Christ church. And other places where I find myself visiting and getting to know folks, we've given in to the culture of sexual promiscuity and immorality. Living together unmarried. Saying we're into Jesus, but we're also into this relationship and being sexually committed to that relationship without getting married. And what I see in that is a similar situation as being described here. Very displeasing to the Lord Jesus. And whatever others you may want to add to the list of compromises we make. Saying we love Jesus, but we're also into this, that, or something else. And when Jesus says to repent, he's offering hope. Repent is one of those big, strong words about change your life, change your behavior, change your direction. And we don't like that word. It's like the John the Baptist crying out in the wilderness, repent, for the day of the Lord is at hand. And it's somewhat ferocious even to repent. But that really is a message of hope. Because without repentance, that is, without redirecting our lives, without a 180 and going in the other direction, all we have for our life is an ongoing, day-by-day assemblage of all the stuff that ruins us and our families and our culture. So to repent is an encouraging, strong encouragement from the Lord to cut it out and to turn back to him and do things as they should be done. One of the things that he goes on then to say, because Jesus isn't just beating up on us to beat up on us. He's described right at the beginning as having a sword from his mouth A sharp, two-edged sword. Scripture says of that sword that it's the word of the Lord. That God speaks and with that sharp, two-edged sword, cuts in both directions. Cuts with that word of truth, which he promises he will bring to provoke our conscience. To transform our behaviors by provoking our conscience. 
That's on the one hand. On the other hand, to bring judgment. Painful judgment. He promises that kind of response, not because he's mad and likes to be mad, but wants the very best for us. And so to repent when God speaks to us and changes the direction of our lives. I think each one of us here, I know speaking for myself, I've been in those situations where I'm compromised, holding on to Jesus and holding on to sin. God says, repent. And his promise in that situation is this. And this is where it becomes very encouraging. He says, he who has an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Well, two things are described here. The hidden manna. That's Jesus himself, the bread of life to us. That he will give himself to us to be spiritually potent, nourishing and strengthening in our lives. And that white stone, one commentator says of that day, that if you were before a court and judgment was coming your way, they cast a black stone down. If you were going to be acquitted as innocent, a white stone down. And here is a white stone with your name on it, acquitting you of any guilt, which is the gift of Jesus when we come to him. And then that deeper interpersonal relationship to him, that he provides for us a new name written on it, on that stone, known only to him, that would be to us, who receives it. In other words, God gets very intimate and personal with us if we are willing to turn from our sin, redirect our lives in his direction, to begin to lead us in deeply personal and intimate ways in our own lives with a new character, a new disposition, and things we would never, ever dream of. And it's a thrill for me to watch that happen. It's a thrill to me to go back over my life and see where it has happened. Where somebody has come with a strong word to me and spoken very directly to me. When I first came to the USA, I was brought here essentially by a man whose name was Tom Frierson. And Tom Frierson called me up I was up in Boston preaching and said he needed to come up and speak to me. He lived in Philadelphia and uh, for us to have a visit over dinner. And he came up to Boston. We went out to dinner one night on whatever pier it was, pier something or other, with a very fancy restaurant and bought me a very nice dinner. And then he said as we're sitting over dinner, John, I cannot support you And this wasn't financial, this was personal, his own acclamation and affirmation of my ministry. 
I can't support you with the way you are now speaking. Because you are angry, you're speaking judgmentally, and I can't back you in that. And I don't have the time to describe to you what that all meant in terms of how I was speaking. But all I did was beat up on people. And he changed the course of my ministry. He changed the course of my life. I knew he was right. And that he had the courage, and he's a very strong, straight-ahead guy, to tell me that I needed to change the way I was preaching. Led me to change the way I was preaching. But he was the word of the Lord to me, personally. And that redirected the whole of my ministry life. I was very young in the game at those day, in those days. That's one small illustration. But the hope that you, as God provokes you in your conscience, as God speaks to you, that you can make that decision, I'm done with that. And repent of it. And turn to him. And allow him by his grace to feed you from himself, give you himself. And give you that new name on that white stone, acquitting you, acclaiming you righteous, and delivering you from whatever the past is. And then intimately to show you the special things he has for you in your life. Let's pray and speak to him now about that. Lord Jesus, to regard this as a love letter. Thank you for the affirmations of those who have made commitments to you and paid the price of that commitment. But when you say that you have knowledge of those amongst us who are compromised... Is that me, Lord? Is there a way in which you are now speaking to me to redirect me? To have me stop doing something? Redirect my life? Lord, you know who I am and what's going on here. And as you speak to me and to my conscience... Help me to turn around, to turn towards you, to walk to you, to surrender to you, to experience your forgiveness, to be made new and clean, and to get that new name, and for you intimately to show me the good things you have in store for me as I set myself to follow you and commit myself to you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.